officers have the power over citizens of a life and death, a power shared only by the state. Only the state can put you to death or a policeman with a gun. But then it was the police who said, what are you going to do next? I killed down more people than any other officer on the Portland Police Bureau. It was my go-to move. I mean, at the end of the day, when when you, when you have a problem, you cannot solve it by yourself. You're going to call us and we'll be there for service and we'll do our best to, to help you solve that problem. It is November 29, 1847, and something has happened at the Whitman Mission. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. The police have to be society's mommy because society is so freaking stupid. But a group of Cayuse men and leaders got together and made the decision that it was time for to dispatch Dr. Whitman. When it all fails, call the cops. Simply going in and arresting people and then leaving is not good enough. Somebody has to step in, and it has to be the police. Um, I'm not sure that it was as much racially motivated as that we just had dead possums and we hated the burger barn. Just to let you know that as a police officer, that I love you and I care about you. This is resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, and I am outside of Walla Walla, Washington at the Whitman National Historic Site, location of the Whitman Incident or the Whitman Massacre, depending on how you look at it. was a dark, dreary day. When I came downstairs, I went to the kitchen where Dr. Whitman was sitting by the cook stove broiling steak for breakfast. I went and put my arms around his neck and kissed him and said, Good morning, Father, as we were taught to greet older persons with all politeness, also to say good night to all as we retired. I continued, I have had such a bad dream, and I woke frightened. He said, What was it? And I said, I dreamed that Indians killed you and a lot of others. He replied, That was a bad dream, but I hope it will not occur. Matilda Sager How do we interpret history? Or to the meat of this series, how do we recount policing actions? There are the perspectives of the policers and the policed, of course, but is one more accurate than the other, more authentic? Are specific words helpful or hurtful in the interpretive process? Are we concerned with impartiality, fairness, or political agendas when presenting past policing? All of these are themes we are going to look at today as we examine the policing of the Whitman Massacre, or the Whitman Incident, or Whitman Attack, or... The Whitman deal, we'll, we're going to call it 
The Whitman Deal. At the time of our tale, the fate of Oregon was completely in flux. Consider this. The United States and England both had legitimate claims on the region, and the Russians and the Spanish also had economic interests in the greater Pacific Northwest. But no one really, air quote, owned Oregon. Except, of course, for the native peoples. But they were largely ignored. Get together to pretend that everything is fun Where everyone looks perfect and the party's never done Till we see the sun See the sun We all know the rules Ranger Stephanie Martin of the Willamette Mission National Historic Site Prior to this the British and the Americans had an agreement that they would be the two countries that could trade with the tribes. There was really no, uh, no claim to the land, it was the claim to trading with the tribes. And all the claims to the land came later in 1855 with Governor Stevens and an actual seeding and purchasing of, of land and decisions made by the tribes then. So as all this was happening, this truly was still a foreign country the British, through the Hudson's Bay Company, had considerable physical constructions and threads of commerce, usually flowing rivers, throughout the entire region. Obviously, England was a very long way away. And as much as the Honorable Company encouraged intermarriage between its white officers and the native women, the British still lacked settlers in the area. Nonetheless, as historian Carlos Schwantes writes, each HBC fort was a visible link in a truly imperial system, joining London with the vast hinterland of the Pacific Northwest. America, on the other hand, was just on the other side of the Rockies. Furthermore, manifest destiny was a notion that the United States was destined, almost ordained, to stretch from sea to shining sea. The term was not created until July of 1845 by magazine editor John Sullivan, but the roots of the concept had been for some time an American ethos. One thing you will discover when you get next to one another is everybody needs some elbow room, elbow room. It's nice when you're kind of cozy, but not when you're tangled nose to nosey. Oh, everybody needs some. Make no mistake, this was to be white Christian Americans bringing their morals and chaste beliefs, along with good old fashioned honest labor, to transform the West. When we look at the more traditional history of Oregon, we have three main epochs of migration. We have the time of the fur traders, the missionary period, and the great migration on the Oregon Trail. Today, we are talking about the missionaries. American Christians slowly started to trickle west, proselytizing and setting up agriculturally-centered missions. 
You got to get us an elbow boom. It's the West or bust. In God we trust. There's a new land out there. Lewis and Clark volunteered to go. Goodbye. Good luck. Chuck Sands, communications director of the Confederated Tribes of Umatilla Reservation. We wanted to talk with you a bit today about what some call the Whitman Incident. Can you tell me a bit about that? Sure, from the Cayuse perspective, you know, in 1836 when the Whitmans came out across the Oregon Trail, the Walipu, the people of the ryegrass, the Cayuse, granted them land so that they may be able to teach both farming and religious practices uh, as they'd been sent out by the missionary board out of Boston. And the Cayuse saw it as an opportunity to learn about the non-Indians who were starting to come into our territory. Uh, as you know, the Hudson Bay Company and the American Fur Company had come into our territory and we'd learned about them. Uh, what is interesting to note, though, is that when the Hudson Bay Company and the American Fur Company came up, whenever they had problems or w with the relationships with the Cayuse people, they would threaten to bring disease into our territory. Dr. Marcus Whitman was not the first missionary to come west. But his wife, Narcissa Whitman, and colleague Eliza Spaulding were the first white women to travel overland to the Oregon Territory. Alice Clarissa, the Whitman's child, was the first to be born of United States citizens in the Pacific Northwest. So the Whitmans were not the first missionaries in the region, but very, very early missionaries in the region. The Whitmans taught the Cayuse how to herd sheep. The native peoples also perfected techniques of irrigation that they learned from the Whitmans, and the Whitmans taught the Cayuse about the Ten Commandments and God and Jesus, often using biblical stories and religious songs. Hundreds attended their services. The doctor did some medical work with the native peoples too, and they also wrote many letters and encouraged many Americans to come settle in Oregon. In 1842, 125 settlers came overland to Oregon. 875 came the next year. The numbers kept growing each year, and by 1860, between 300,000 and 400,000 settlers came overland to the Willamette Valley. There was tension between some of the Cayuse and the Whitmans. Someone at the mission put emetics, or medicines that cause vomiting, inside the mission garden melons. The thought was to discourage the native peoples from stealing said melons. Instead, it just established the precedent that Marcus Whitman poisoned their peoples, which, as Chuck Sams noted, had happened before to the Cayuse. In addition, the Whitmans poisoned wolves with arsenic-laced meat, and on at least one occasion, some Indians had eaten the tarnished meat, intended for the wolves, and become violently ill. This historical record would be disastrous for the Whitmans. An interpretive plaque at the Tomaslicht Cultural Institute in Pendleton helps provide some context on what happened the people began to witness an endless stream of immigrants passing through ancestral lands. The impacts of massive immigration became clear as each year went by. We saw a visible ecological imbalance in the land. Grazing lands began to diminish, water holes became polluted, 
game animals became more scarce. Trail trash littered the landscape. As immigrant populations increased, so did death from lawlessness and disease. Dysentery, scarlet fever, typhus and malaria became common. The arrival of smallpox and measles later reduced our population by more than half. Another plaque at the museum calls the tragedy at Weiletpu the spilling of the blood. In the fall of 1847, a measles epidemic brought on a wagon train of American settlers swept through the Cayuse. After two months of sickness, about half of them had died. Dr. Whitman was powerless to save them from the outbreak. The Indians of the region were described as being surly and resentful. So by 1847, 11 years after their time here, in which they had generally cordial relationships with the Whitmans, uh, the Cayuse had seen that Dr. Whitman was not able to cure many of the tribal people who had been inflicted by measles. Now, the other non-Indians who were in the territory at the time and in our, in our homelands were becoming cured. Um, but in our own practices and our own laws, those who practice medicine uh, have a responsibility for their patients, which is not unlike today. And so, you know, we have malpractice suits in today in modern times, and those malpractice suits can get you up to life in prison if you, you know, cause harm uh, purposely uh, to your patient. And so that's no different among our culture. We also had the same uh, types of laws. Most of the time, it just was the removal of property or the banishment, uh, but the severity of it uh, was so strong a concern that a group of Cayuse men and leaders got together and made the decision that it was time for, to dispatch Dr. Whitman. On the afternoon of November 29th, several native men came to the Whitman's house under the guise of seeking medical attention. They had secreted weapons for the encounter. The doctor was struck twice on the head with a tomahawk and his face was later mutilated. Others in the mission house were attacked and killed. The descriptions of the day do indeed sound like a horrific, violent episode. 13 or 14 people were killed and 53 were held as hostages. Upwards of 60 Cayuse and Umatillas participated in the slayings. Narcissa Whitman prayed for the savages, for they knew not what they did. Some of them, it is said, hearing her pray for them, turned away in shame and took no further part in the massacre. She was later shot and whipped, her corpse left in the mud. incident as it's described in the first-person accounts uh, by many of the settlers that were there is, again, what we view today as pretty horrific. Um, is it viewed in a different light traditionally by the Cayuse people? 
Sure, it's it's viewed as as if it was a a police raid. Uh, a police raid done on your home unexpectedly by ten or eleven cops would seem horrific in your home, um, and it's the same way we would expect the Whitmans probably and the other folks that were in and around the mission to feel too. Um, but the raid was done under the auspice that Dr. Whitman had caused harm and other people uh, were hurt in that process. Now you'll notice that the uh, killings that did happen did not take beyond basically the Whitman family or those who resisted. Uh, we ended up with 50 prisoners that were eventually traded back to the Hudson Bay Company, which was also a traditional practice when you took other prisoners is to have that prisoner exchange with other folks. And in this case, it was other uh, settlers who were in the region. of the Whitman deal reached the Oregonians, a swift police response was demanded. The provincial government was ill-equipped to deal with an appropriate police response. On December 8, 1847, provisional governor George Abernathy ordered a militia be raised to bring the leaders of the Whitman massacre to justice. He authorized the supplying of a company of 50 riflemen and this force was later increased to 500. The people would be policed. Decisions were made over on the coast with the provisional government that, you know, there would be a militia form. Uh, they would go to the Dalles and set up a military presence, and then they would go on in to try to capture the murderers. And so, technically, it was about it was in January of 1848 then that finally it was all organized and Colonel Gilliam set out with his group of, of men. And over in Cayuse country that day, a bunch of Cayuse people had uh, stolen some cattle that were kind of leftovers from all of this. They had taken them and then others had fought with them and that was sort of the first bullets fired in the Cayuse war. That same in January. But this, this really was a policing action. They were looking for the killers, supposedly, of the Whitman. Yes, and that's kind of what they were, they were, they were directed to the Dalles to set up the military presence. And then the, the group of volunteers of the militia came on over with Gilliam and with uh, Waters. And, and that was really, that was to investigate and then arrest the murderers. But, it, it did turn into a long series of skirmishes over the next year, the Cayuse War. And of course, everybody involved in this fled. And of course, those goddamn wolves. They came over and there were initial skirmishes uh, and they all camped basically over in the abandoned village. Tillichite's village initially, and then they came over that day and saw the destruction of the uh, mission. And of course, the grave had been uh, disturbed by wolves and they collected up the remains of the people who had been killed. So it was a pretty horrific sight here. And a group of these volunteers were left here to uh, construct a basic fort. They used the adobe bricks from the mission house built a wall about four feet tall, 
fixed the roof on the mission house and it became Fort Waters for the next year. And so there was an actual military presence here for one year, which prevented the Cayuse from coming back in to their village. Um, so that was also the end of the time that the Cayuse lived here. They all thought they would be able to come back, but uh, when, when this blew over, but inevitably it was two years uh, until that trial and then they had to go to the reservation. We asked Chuck Sams if the Cayuse viewed the Oregon militia as a police action. You know, it was looked at as an invasion. So you have to recognize that we as a people didn't recognize the United States' claim on the territory. Oregon territory, as, as it was claimed under President Polk, I believe, um, really didn't exist in our minds. This was still our homeland. No treaty had been signed, no negotiations. And even if you follow the doctrine of discovery and use the Christianity claim for the territory, there's still an obligation by the sovereign, in this case the United States, who had taken power away from Great Britain, to negotiate a treaty, which doesn't happen until 1855. And so you end up in a war, and that war uh, was carried out by the Cayuse to, to fend off the white settlers who had no right to be crossing our homelands. You know, Dr. Whitman, that was what he also was being prosecuted for, is that, you know, his agreement was just to teach farming and to teach religion. And he ended up bringing in 5,000 more people across the Oregon Trail. And he did that for money, for economic purposes. So he was in violation of his contractual and his word agreement that he had had with the Cayuse. After two years of pursuit, five Cayuse men were offered up to the United States Cavalry and taken to Oregon City for justice. The prisoners were kept in chains in what historian Ronald Lansing has called one of Oregon's earliest attempts at formal and proper judicial procedure. Trial seems problematic to me when I look at the documents. Do you think, as a representative of the Cayuse people, that you would agree? I would agree completely. First, uh, the uh, law officers in charge of the territory at the time, Joe Meeks and the rest of them, had no authority to work in Indian country. They had no jurisdiction of a crime that happened within Indian country. And therefore, they, how can you prosecute a crime? You know, the defender of the Cayuse Five, while he in his journal believes that they are completely guilty and should be hung, his first job is he asks for a dismissal of a trial because he recognizes the United States has and neither does the territory jurisdiction in this area. But the judge overrules him and they go forward with a case. And even all along the way, uh, I think that what's remarkable is that he stands up, even though he has a personal belief that they're guilty and should be hung, that they still have rights under the U.S. law that they shouldn't be prosecuted because there was no jurisdictional authority by, those, by the United States or its territory to, to intervene. We presented this argument to Ranger Martin, and of course, today, um, you know, when we spoke with Chuck Sams at the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla, he pointed out that when the trial was conducted, it was really over lands that that governing body did not have jurisdiction over. Yes, that's true. So you can question the, the authority of the judge at the time. Um, and I think that because of the way that Native peoples had of, of mediating and solving their problems in ways other than just declaring and hanging someone. You know, the, the young chief here, the Cayuse chief, escorted those men over, probably 
never thinking that it would end so horribly. So they, again, it was the difference in the two cultures and, and truly the Americans not making the effort to learn more about the Cayuse laws and the Cayuse culture. So uh, technically, yes, they had no jurisdiction over this region. On May 24, 1850, Chief Telokite, Tomahas, Isaiah Shalukas, Klokomas, and Kiyomasumkin were found guilty and sentenced to death. Judge Orville Pratt denied a request of appeal. On June 3, 1850, U.S. Marshal Joe Meek hanged the Cayuse Five, much to the joy of a large Oregon City audience. So, validity of the court aside, which of course you can't really dismiss, there were many who thought that the Cayuse Five themselves were likely not the executioners of the Whitmans. Oh, I wholeheartedly believe that innocent men hung. Um, when we look back through the records and through oral tradition and the history, uh, we believe that a few of them may have been actually at the killings of the Whitmans, but not all of them. They, they gave themselves up in order to protect the rest of their people because of the burgeoning effect of the immigrants coming across and more and more federal troops coming into the territory. They knew that they wanted to stop this war that was happening between predominantly the militia and our Cayuse people so that we could get to a better resolve. Ranger Martin's thoughts are a little more cautious. The Cayuse five that were hung, were some of those men innocent? Uh, you know, there's, they've looked into that quite a bit, and because of the testimony of the settlers that were here and the Sager girls that had been here for three years, most likely, even though they claimed that the two men involved had already been killed, but even the tribe has agreed that four were definitely involved, but one man was probably not even here, and yet his name was brought up, and then no one had any eyewitness accounts. And this is documented well in Drury and in the court records. But in the end, it was like they had to have these scapegoats. And, and in the end, they said, well, you know, you always tell us that Jesus gave his life for his people and we are doing the same thing. Because this man's family was starving in the snow in the Blue Mountains. And this was... Uh, you know, people forget that the people that were run out of here, it was women and children that had to go out without supplies and belongings and literally, you know, literally live in five feet of snow in the mountains. Uh, it was a horrific situation that finally forced the Cayuse to look at it and say, yes, we've got to bring these people in. The people that the Americans are accusing, not necessarily who, who had done it. So, uh, and yet that man is remembered to this day among tribal members. You know, he did. He gave his life for everybody else. The short-term effects of the attack were significant. As historian Oscar Osborne Winther has written, the atrocity, as he described it, was quite significant for Oregonians. Public indignation throughout the whole nation was so aroused that legislative action in making Oregon a territory was speeded up. In 1848, President Polk signed a bill making Oregon a United States territory. The need to police the natives and secure the safety of the American settlers helped to finally federalize the Oregon territory. 
which suited the settlers just fine. All along, the whole goal of this group was that this region would be American, not British. They, they never considered the natives who lived here. That was not the issue. They wanted the British out. And so in the end, they, they had asked Congress before many times to make them into a, a true territory, but they sent Joe Meek back this time, and there were, it was another man from Oregon who also had been on a sailing ship and was back there, and the two of them really convinced Congress to go ahead and, and declare Oregon territory. So at, at that point, that was when the actual land grab happened. The lasting effects of the massacre and the response were dramatic. Fifteen Cayuse people made the decision to do this, but it affected all Cayuse people from Dayton to past La Grande. Uh, all Cayuse people took, you know, basically took the blame for this. And yet after that trial, it was like with the Oregon group, you know, justice was done, and then the Cayuse could come back in and go to the reservation. So um, kind of finally took the, the sting out of that situation, but then the Cayuse never resumed life as they had lived it. Chuck Sams gives us some larger political effects of the Cayuse War. Well, you know, it brought out the federalism, and so you ended up with the federal government actually coming out. You know, originally, as the militia in the Oregon Territory were coming in uh, and fighting the, the Cayuse War, they were asking the uh, Columbia provisionary army, which were the federal troops in the area to support. But there were a number of letters that come from the commanding officer from this area telling the militia to stop because the general and the commanding officer in the area understood the United States hadn't negotiated with the Cayuse, Umatilla, or Walla Walla people. And so they eventually did step in, but many times when they stepped in, it wasn't necessarily to attack. They were trying to keep the militia from coming into the territory and trying to keep the Indians from attacking the militia until we ended up into a, a negotiations. Uh, but in the interim, you know, by 1850, uh, we end up having a surrender uh, of some Cayuse men, and uh, some of them being my own relations. And so, but you'll notice, I think it was Thomas who said, just as Jesus died on the cross for your sins, we turn ourselves in for our people so you will stop attacking us. So they were trying to relate that, and I would say that was a lasting effect from Dr. Whit Dr. Whitman, is the understanding of the Christianity beliefs. Not that they thought that they were um, godlike men, but they understood the need to sacrifice somebody in order to stop the fighting. Historian J.D. Chandler offers some interpretation as well. The, the reason that we had the Cayuse War was to create a state of Oregon. Uh, they used war many times to create that idea of Oregon as a political entity and Oregon as a real place. And without the Indian Wars, we wouldn't probably wouldn't have been a state. So uh, it was very important politically, and we were indoctrinated so heavily in that political importance that it's difficult for us even to know what's real there now. Yeah, and I think almost that massacre if we use that terminology, gives us legitimacy to this day. Exactly. Exactly. Because a massacre is something that's bad that we should do something about, even if it's commit another massacre. Um, never really understood that point of view, but it, most people do understand it. And Ranger Martin points out some of the cultural unawareness and the consequences of federalism. And it's just that I don't think that they had no, enough knowledge of American culture to realize that they were definitely outnumbered and 
and there would be horrible consequences. They were remote here, and they were the, some of the last to be affected by you know, the settlers moving to the west. But they had always been aware of what had happened to tribes in the east. So uh, the, the men of, of these groups, among the, you know, especially the Walla Wallas and the Cayuse, this was a major discussion for years, trying to decide what direction they would go. But when it came down to that they had to finally take a stand and fight, they were willing to do it, and they did. But the federal recognition of the Cayuse was unique in the era. Ultimately, that's what happens. You have Isaac and Stevens, the two treaty negotiators on the behalf of the United States, come out in 1855 and negotiate a treaty of peace. And that must be markedly different. Most of the treaties that you have with tribes throughout the Midwest are treaties of war, meaning the United States conquered them. A treaty of peace is a recognition of between two equals. And so people will look at our treaty and recognize that, okay, that at least the federal government understood that there had to be a negotiation of both sides. For relinquishing 6.4 million acres of land, the tribes reserved certain rights that they'd always had for themselves. And there's a sovereign recognition from the United States that these tribes had a right to self-govern themselves and to protect those certain rights, predominantly the rights to hunt, fish, and gather in all usual custom stations, not to be bothered. Promises, promises, I'm up with promises, promises now. I don't know how I got the nerve to walk out if I shout. Remember, I feel free. Now I can look at myself and be proud. I'm left. The telling of this tale has evolved over time. Individual words are important and weighed. Ranger Martin helps us examine these specific words that have been used to label the the Whitman deal. I've heard this described as an incident. I've heard it described as a massacre. In this current era, we refer to it as an incident, correct? You know, here at the park, we just, it, it's an attack. You know, it it's, it's a premeditated attack and it happened on both sides. The Cayuse made decisions to attack and the Americans made decisions to attack. And the, the word massacre is so loaded with other meaning, it, it almost means complete annihilation. And there were definitely, there have been over in history incidences of, of massacre, but unfortunately during the Indian Wars it seems like every time the Indians attacked it was a massacre and every time the uh, soldiers attacked it was not called that, even though there were definite instances where it was genocide. So here at the park we refer to it as an attack and we tell the reasons on both sides and we do have good records and it is very logical what led up to, to this attack and why they did it. So depending on which word you use to describe the deal, certain political insinuations can be implied. Historian J.D. Chandler. It's hard to not 
get caught up in definitions when telling this story? This story in particular, and a big part of that is because of the way that we were raised. Um, I grew up in Oregon, also in California, and so my local history was Oregonian mainly. And so I heard about the Whitman Massacre probably starting in first grade. Over and over and over the story was told to me, and it was told to me from one very specific point of view. The white people were good, the brown people were bad, the brown people killed the white people. That was the story that I got over and over and over. And so it's so ingrained in us that this is the story, even though this is only a really tiny little part of the story, and it's probably the least true part of the story. Um, but it's the one that's just so strong in all of us. Let's listen to a few different accounts of the deal over time, and notice how different the interpretation is. William McBean, who first reported the deal to Provisional Governor George Abernathy, called it a horrid massacre. His letter was dated November 30th, directly after the deal, so truly one of the first written recountings available for us to examine. Bean's account also provides some interpretation of the cause of the deal. He writes, I presume you are well acquainted that fever and dysentery has been raging here, and in this vicinity, in consequence of which a great number of the Indians have been swept away, but more especially at the doctor's place where he attended upon the Indians. About thirty souls of the Cayuse tribe died, one after another, who eventually believed the doctor poisoned them, and in which opinion they were unfortunately confirmed by one of the doctor's party. As far as I have been able to learn, this has been the sole cause of the dreadful butchery. Now, let's consider the deal's interpretation 100 years after. Historian Oscar Osborne Winther. In the camp of Tilaukite, a Cayuse, a general massacre of the entire mission personnel was being plotted. On November 29, 1847, the blow as planned was struck. That morning, Cayuse Indians sauntered unobtrusively onto the mission grounds, but hidden beneath their blankets were their weapons. Casually, Tilaukite with Tom Suki inquired at the mission kitchen for Whitman. The doctor entered, closed the door. As he conversed with Tilaukite, Tamsuki approached from behind and struck Whitman with a fatal blow upon the head. This was the signal for the other conspirators to begin a general massacre. Of the 72 persons then present at or near the mission, the Indians slaughtered 14 including both Whitman and his wife Narcissa, about 53 women and children, many of whom were abused, were held captive until finally ransomed by the Hudson's Bay Company. Winther also calls the murder an atrocity. Fast forward to the 1960s, and the interpretation of the deal has softened a bit. As the National Park Service handbook to the mission from 1964 says, Today the story of the Whitmans serves to inspire all people who would pursue the way of high principles and ideals. Events at Wailatpu were climaxed with disaster, 
but from this tragedy there shines a rare courage, dedication, and strength that men will ever need. It is indeed a more uplifting message. Don't look at the mutilated bodies and the pool of blood on the floor. Look at the shiny courage and inspiration that resulted. But in 2016, when we examine this story, we don't see this inspiration. We see arrogance. Today, the National Park Service website declares that the Whitmans have also been described as culturally ignorant and inflexible, as insensitive interlopers who were trying to impose their views on an unwilling population. The Whitmans' story serving as a warning against even well-intentioned intervention into other cultures. Quite a change in interpretation from the inspiration of 1964. Today, at the Whitman Mission National Historic Site, it's interesting to note that the park's museum displays don't address the deal very much at all. On a plaque entitled Mission's End, there is a fairly vanilla summation of November 29, saying the missionaries were attacked and killed. The interpreter finishes by saying, Protestant missionary work ceased in the Northwest for a generation after the tragedy. On Old Highway 12, leading to the mission, there is a big brown historic highway marker that has an even more divergent analysis. Titled Waiilatpu, it reads in part, Cultural differences, climaxed by a measles epidemic that killed many Cayuse, ended the missionary effort. A few suspicious Cayuse took the lives of Marcus and Narcissa Whitman and 11 others on November 29, 1847. You can see how anything emotional has been stripped from those government interpretations. Next, let's hear how the signs at the Tomasklit Cultural Institute interpret the Cayuse police action, as Chuck Sams called it. Death gripped our villages. A traditional council of laws was formed and a decision rendered. On November 29, a small band of Cayuse killed the missionaries Marcus and Narcissa Whitman, along with twelve others. Open resistance had now begun. We asked our guests if there were two different ways to tell this story, and if they both could be accurate. Chuck Sams starts us off. You know, it's, uh, it's called his story for a reason. It's the person who experienced it is telling their story. And so I would say for uh, growing up in the Pendleton School District here and growing up and hearing about the Whitman Massacre, yes, I think probably through their eyes, this is what occurred to them. This is what happened. But what we've been blinded for so many longs is our story. And so through Tomasla Cultural Institute, through our own history writing, through our own storytelling, and through the memory of those who can remember, who have the oral history of that time, we are telling our story and our version of how we viewed it and our worldview at that time. We asked Ranger Martin about these disparate stories too, and she told us a bit about the historiography at the National Historic Site. Are there two or even three ways to tell this story? And are they all correct? This story has been told in, in 
many different ways. Uh, you know, they always say that the story has been told from the point of view of the victor. And so if you look at the Romans when they invaded Ireland, you hear about then the, you know, advent of Christianity, but you don't hear about from the Irish side that the Romans slaughtered most of them. So in most cases through the up to the 50s in this park, 60s, 70s, we had um, we didn't have the oral history of the native people to, to, to be able to tell this story. We had written military records and we had the Sagers records. And so we were telling the story from the point of view of the winners. By the 80s at this park, they had made the attempts to learn some of this story from the tribal side. We had had uh, historians come in and, uh, and learn more literally living with the tribes and there are books were written so we finally had some reference sources and you can see that it's represented in our museum at that time we finally included the Cayuse side of the story to a point along with the Whitman side of the story because really uh, there were many missionaries sent out to many native peoples and to many other countries in that time period and it's interesting that the story of the Whitmans ended up, uh, you know, just featuring them because there were definitely other missionaries here and a lot going on. So what we're doing today is we work with, our official partners are the scholars at Whitman College and the tribal members at the Umatilla tribe. And when we are, uh, we are getting ready to produce a new brochure and that will be done with these our two groups. We're, we're not uh, we're not just going to pull information out of texts anymore, and we're going to talk to the descendants of these people. and And we have been. That's the uh, direction this park has taken in the last four years, especially. And we're being careful to do it right this time. So it's almost like. You, you can't really say that there's three sides of the story. Uh, it's just like Rashomon, you know, it's, it's, it's as each group views it when they don't have the other information. And we are trying to pull all that information together and, and tell the whole story. And, and then give people the chance to make up their own minds. It's, it's very easy to present what the Whitmans were thinking at one time from the letters and, and and the information we have, and then with how the story correlates with the stories we get from the tribe, it all just gives you a much better window into that, that time. Historian Eric Fawner has stated that, the most difficult truth for those outside the ranks of professional historians to accept is that there often exists more than one legitimate way of recounting past events. And the Whitman deal is a perfect case study of this paradigm. The National Park Service website has an interesting statement. It says, this event soon became known as the Whitman Massacre. While this phrase captured the anger and frustration felt by many Americans at the time, it doesn't accurately reflect actual historical events. For many today, the term massacre brings to mind complete annihilation. Several people were killed, including Dr. and Mrs. Whitman, but most lived. The survivors were held hostage for a month before being ransomed by employees of the Hudson's Bay Company. 
So that's what the NPS says, but I also want to point out that we certainly must not forget that the survivors were raped and held in sexual slavery too. I don't care how you cut it. Defining massacre as only meaning killing everybody present just seems kind of fucking weird, especially in our era of seemingly daily mass shootings and other terrorist attacks. Clash of cultures seems a little wishy-washy too. Sure, I mean, that's what happened, but couldn't we use that term to describe wounded knee or even Milai? I certainly wouldn't want to soften those two other massacres, and yes, I chose that word specifically, by describing them in any other way. Incident or attack seems like pretty reasonable labels, and then you get away from the political connotations of the word massacre. But isn't that belittling what happened at the mission there, right outside of Walla Walla? So I'll leave it up to you, dear ass kicker. Call the Whitman deal whatever the hell you want. I won't judge you. And I certainly respect the perspective of the folks that we spoke to for this episode. But ultimately, let's keep this as a reminder that when we describe policing in a historical context, words matter. And sometimes the telling of the story of how the policing transpired, especially in a historical context, can be almost as important as the action of the policing itself. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Go tell that long tongue liar, go and tell that midnight rider, tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter, tell him that God's gonna cut him down. Tell them that God's gonna cut them down Well, my goodness gracious, let me tell you the news Kick-Ass Oregon History Season 10 is a production of ORHistory.com It is written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kane Crispin and Andy Lindbergh Citations are available by request We hope that you agree that today's episode contains some kick-ass Oregon history. If you like what you hear, you should give us money to make more. Visit orhistory.com to learn how you can give us money once or over and over again. Follow us on the internet, Twitter, at Oregon underscore history. Look for us on Facebook and Instagram, too, at kick-ass Oregon history. As always, visit us on the web at orhistory.com or send an email directly to historian Doug Kent Crispin, OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kent Crispin. And of course the grave had been uh, disturbed by wolves and they collected up the remains of the people who had been killed. You stay historic, Oregon. And... Kick ass. For a long time. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Go tell that long tongue liar. Go and tell that midnight rider. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. Tell him that God's gonna cut you down. Tell him that God's gonna cut you down. Tell him that God's gonna cut you down. ORHistory.com